Good morning, church. Today, our scripture reading is in 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 19. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 993. And if you're not comfortable, get comfortable right now, all right? I'll give you a minute or two to get there, and then I'll start reading. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of God. We're in a New Year's series called Disciplines of Grace. <clears throat> and that can kind of sound like an oxymoron to some of us. How can how can I be disciplined and rely on grace at the same time? Isn't grace a gift? And amen. It is. It is. We stand in grace. We are showered with grace. God freely gives us His grace. And yet grace is that thing that we must also strive to live in, live by, live from. And so we must discipline ourselves in grace. And so, thus, disciplines of grace. If I am dwelling in grace, these things will make sense to me. Not because I'm trying to earn God or earn His love, but because 
God loves me. If God loves me, these will be part of my life. And so today we want to talk about the discipline of contentment in Christ. The discipline of contentment in Christ. We read from, Jackie read from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, Pastor Timothy. Pastor Timothy pastored in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was extremely wealthy. They were a wealthy city, even a greedy city, a proud city. And so it, it, it should come to no shock to us, as no shock to us, that in Tim, Pastor Timothy's church, there were likely discontented Christians, greedy Christians. Now, thankfully, we don't have this problem today. So, this is going to be a five-minute sermon. No, we, we have this problem in abundance, and so buckle in. Here's the problem. The problem is we are discontent, aren't we? It's even amazing how discontent we all are. And all I got to do is probably spend 10 to 15 minutes with you before I hear a statement of discontent, a complaint. Riding in the car, in the line at the grocery store, on hold with Verizon, uh, waiting for your boss to approve something or send that email. We never have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough control. We don't have enough information. We don't have enough energy. I will confess, just as Pastor Mark confessed last week, the sin of hurry, I will confess to you the sin of discontentment. I am a, I'm sure the grass is greener over there kind of guy. I am an impatient person. Ask the other pastors, especially in ministry, we should be doing this yesterday. Why aren't we doing this? And, and that discontent can drive me. So where are we going today? This morning, we're going to talk, number one, about how our discontentment will destroy us. Number two, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then number three, practicing contentment in Christ. So let's look at lesson number one. Our discontentment will destroy us. This is as old as Genesis 3. Two perfectish people in a perfect place, given everything they could ever want or need, one restriction, and their discontentment immediately kicked in. I want that. Why don't I have that fruit from that tree, the one that'll make me kind of like God? And we've been living that story ever since, haven't we? The Israelites were discontented in the wilderness, so they complained. Achan was, was discontent, so he stole Naomi was discontent, so she was depressed. David was discontent, so he committed adultery. Haman was discontent, so he tried to wipe out the Jews. Judas was discontent, so he abandoned Christ and turned him over to the authorities. Truly, as our text says, the love of money is the root of all evil. How? 
Let me suggest that this is the progression. This is a progression. First of all, we deny God and eternity. Then we replace God with idolatry, including consumerism. We'll talk specifically about the idol of consumerism. Our idolatry leads to greed, and our greed leads to evil, okay? First, we deny God and eternity. We see that in our text. These false teachers, verse 3, they're teaching a different doctrine that is not sound and does not agree with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're rejecting the teaching of Christ. Did Christ teach God? Yes. Did Christ teach eternity? Yes. Did he teach himself as the way to eternity? Yes. And they are rejecting that. Verse 17, they're putting their hope in riches, the uncertainty of riches. They're putting, they're they're trying to have gain, worldly gain through a false version of godliness. Let me tell you, here's a statement. If there is no eternal life with God, I'm sorry, if there is eternal life with God and earthly treasures don't go with us into eternity, if there's eternal life and earthly things don't go with us, then discontentment is a form of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance meaning what I say I believe and the way I act are opposite. Every Christian in here, I'm guessing, if you claim Christ, you would say, yes, I believe in eternal life in heaven, and I also pretty much mostly believe, yeah, I guess, that none of my earthly possessions will go with me. No U-Hauls behind hearses, right? (laughs) And yet, even though we claim to believe that, we don't live that way. We just want more, more, more. And so, our denial of God leads to idolatry. It leads to idolatry. Why? Because when, even as Christians, I'm talking to Christians too, I mean, some of you in here have just flat out denied God. You've just said, there is no God. I'm an atheist no eternal life. Okay, but listen, listen, everybody's worshiping something. Everybody has a God, even if it's lowercase g God. It might be you. It might be your money. But you worship something. Our hearts are empty, and they desire to chase after something We fill the void. Maybe it's with our favorite team. Maybe it's with our career. Maybe it's with exercise. Maybe it's with uh, beauty, you know, external beauty. Whatever it is, we fill our hearts because our hearts are void. Our hearts are empty. And we fill it with an idol, a God, a deity that we worship. Because without that, how else would I ever justify my existence? How else, how else can, I, can I stand and look in the mirror and say, I have a right to live? And so we have to have something that we worship, something that justifies us. But listen, only worshiping God will work. Only worshiping an infinite God, something that's bigger than you, will work. Your God has to be infinite or it'll literally run out. 
Money runs out. Beauty runs out. <laughs> Health runs out. You li- I say it all the time. If you live long enough, you lose everything. Right? Your God has to be infinite. And then number two, your God has to be gracious. If, if your God, if the thing you're worshiping isn't gracious, it'll, it'll put demand after demand after demand upon you, and you won't live up. John Rockefeller, how much money do you need? Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. You have to have a God that's infinite and gracious. May I introduce to you Jesus, infinite and gracious. The gospel makes no demands upon you. The cross of Jesus makes no demands. It says, just receive it. Just receive it. Faith, just take it. Here's all my riches, all my abundance, the universe, love, peace. Take it. Just take it. That's all, that's it. He's infinite and he's gracious. And so thus the warning of verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare, senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Ruin and destruction. Why? Because it's never enough. That's why, that's why greed is destructive. That's why idolatry is destructive. The drugs are never enough. The alcohol is never enough. The shopping is never enough. The chocolate is never enough. The romance is never enough. The expectations I put on my spouse are never enough. The career, the, the ladder, the ladder is infinite. I can never get to the top of that ladder. And then put God in the equation. How will you ever reach an infinitely pure and just and holy God on your own? You won't, not unless he's gracious, and he came down the ladder and picks you up and climbs up with you on his back. That's the only way. We're in what John Mark Comer calls a chronic state of restlessness, or worse, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, all of which lead to a life of hurry, busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of always needing more. Whew. Consumerism. So I want to talk about one, there's lots of idols. <laughs> we could talk about 10,000 idols. I want to talk about consumerism because my topic is contentment. <laughs> so I want to talk about consumerism. One of our many idols is consumerism satisfaction through things, through the consumption of things. Verse 9, the pers- he calls it the pursuit of riches. The pursuit of riches. In this culture, in Paul's culture, the pursuit of riches was about status and honor, right? Rich people are honored, poor people are dishonored. And so, how do I change my societal status? Money. (laughs) That's not too different from us today, is it? We assume rich people are smart. We assume Oprah's a genius. She must be. How could she be a billionaire without being a genius? We, We believe that rich people are better. 
We believe that rich people have always worked harder, that they've overcome some sort of obstacles. And so we believe that in order to change our status, we too must have things. We must have material wealth. And so material wealth becomes our functional savior. This is how Friedrich Nietzsche said it. Atheist, famous atheist, God is dead guy, right? God is dead guy said this. What was once done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, for the love of that which at present affords the highest feeling of power. He's not wrong. (laughs) He's not wrong. He had his finger. This is 1881. He's a prophet. (laughs) He's got his finger on the pulse of 2023, doesn't he? We live in a place where, we live in a society, a time where our cultural narrative is threefold, authenticity, freedom, and consumerism. Young people especially, listen to me, this is what you are being sold, told and sold in everything that you look at, that you, authenticity, that you need to be who you want to be, freedom, that you need to do what you want to do consumerism that you need to have whatever you want to have. And if anybody stands in the way of that, even your parents, even your pastor, even people that we used to call wise, you should just say, forget you, and you should forge ahead in your own self-authentic, self-expression, individualism. It's deadly. And so we live in a world where we practice the religion of consumerism, don't we? Our church is Target and Walmart. Our creed is expect more, pay less. That, that's, Target's, that's Target's credo, isn't it? Do you hear dis, the discontentment? Expect more. Walmart, save more, live better. Live better? <laughs> By going to Walmart? (laughs) Not the buoy Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, if you work at buoy Walmart, I apologize. (laughs) Forgive me, forgive me. Our tithes and offerings go to Amazon. We take communion at Starbucks. We venerate saints like the Kardashians and the Real Housewives. We pray to the gods of the stock market and practice retail therapy. But nothing is ever enough, is it? It's always a moving target. Because Because in consumerism, the products are always changing, aren't they? There's always a new iPhone. I got Google 7, Google Pixel 7, and Google Pixel 8's out. What am I going to do? Well, I mean, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) Consumerism, more, more, more. And here's what's happening. We're, We're learning to forsake the transient, the holy, the beyond. What consumerism says is that there is no higher good than to simply consume. And, and to feel the pleasure that that brings in the moment. As soon as the moment's over, you got to find something else, though, don't you? You got to find something else. And so we're never satisfied. It's like a drug. 
When the high wears off, we need the next thing. Think back to Christmas afternoon. Christmas morning was amazing. Christmas afternoon was kind of like, now what? You're thinking about all the things you want to take back and just get cash. We're consumers. Here, listen to me. We're, co- we're becoming consumers that don't produce. And that's deadly. When God created humanity, He created them to consume. It is true. He put them in a garden and said, consume it. Everything here you can eat. You hear it? That's consumption. But He also said, be fruitful, multiply, work the ground, cultivate the soil, produce. And so love is a cycle of consuming and producing. I consume, yes, but I also produce. I receive, yes, but I also give. That's love. Love is that cycle. And we have a whole society that's rooted in just consume, just consume, just consume. Don't worry if you produce. So that sex has just been consumption. Sex is supposed to be, I consume sex within the context of a loving marriage, and from that consumption, I produce a family, or I produce intimacy with my spouse. Something comes out of it other than my own selfish satisfaction. Food has just become consumption, fast food, so that I consume just to feel satisfied instead of what food is supposed to be, which is consumption that produces thankfulness and gratitude and service. The entertainment industry It literally, scrolling on your phone, what is happening when you're scrolling on your phone? You're consuming, 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 consuming. Are you producing? No. No. You're becoming bloated. Church. We've turned church into Build-A-Bear. You ever go to Build-A-Bear? You go in, I want this bear, I like this bear. I like these clothes. I like these accessories. Literally thousands of combinations at your fingertips. This is how Americans go to church now. This church has a good Awana, and this church has a good lady study, and this church is good for the teens, and so we'll just bounce around from church to church. And what is that doing to our hearts? We're just consumers, we're bloated. We don't, we don't, we're not producing anything in our local church. Ouch. So now we're greedy. So now we're greedy. We deny God. We turn to idols. We become greedy. The love of money, verse 9. The love of money. When what, we don't cons- when what we consume doesn't satisfy us, we need more, more, more. That's greed. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. None of us is greedy. <laughs> I've never met a greedy person. I've never, I've ne- in 16 years of being a pastor, I have yet, yet to have anybody come in my office and say, Brady, can I talk about my greed? <laughs> I've talked about sex, 
I've talked about, I've talked about work with people. I've talked about a lot of things with people. I've never, I've never been, to, I've never talked about greed because nobody, there are no greedy people in this church. <laughs> greed is everybody else's problem, isn't it? It's the, the CEOs, they're greedy. The welfare bums, they're greedy. I'm here in the middle. I'm not greedy. A recent survey showed that 75% of Americans think that America has a greed problem. But only 17% of those people said that they were greedy. 75% said America is greedy, but but only 17% said I'm one of them. Whew. The problem is when it becomes that cultural narrative where consuming and authenticity are united, we begin to think, well, to be happy, to be my true self, to be who God created me to be, I have to have things. Oprah Winfrey said in an interview, if I had known how how being my authentic self could make me so rich, I would have done it a lot sooner. If I had known how being my authentic self could make me so rich, I would have done it a lot sooner. You hear what she's equating? She's equating authenticity with wealth. If I'm my true self, I'll end up wealthy. That's a lie. (laughs) That's a lie. Don't buy that lie. Oprah's Oprah's not paying attention to the 10,000 other contingencies that went into that woman being wealthy. Okay. Evil. Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Or literally, love of money is a root of all evil. What does that mean? Why does Paul say that? Because there are things, there are certain things that money can't buy, and there are things that money can buy. Money cannot buy God. You can't buy God. You can't buy Jesus. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy love. You can't buy grace. You can't buy mercy. You can't buy peace. There are things that money can't buy. What does that mean? It, what, it, what that means, if the greatest things in the universe, God and His love and His mercy and His grace, if those can't be purchased, what it means is that everything we can purchase has the potential of replacing God. Are you tracking with me? God can't be purchased, can't buy God but I can buy a new car, I can buy a new house, I can put money into retirement, I can do all of these things. And so the danger is, is that any one of those things can start to replace God and therefore become evil, become evil, evil in our own hearts because it takes us away from God. And listen, here's the thing. We know, like if we look at our history as a nation, we can say, I get it. Our nation's worst evils were driven by greed, weren't they? The slave trade, greed, removal of Native Americans, breaking treaties with Native Americans, genocide of Native Americans, greed. 
the abortion industry, greed, the military-industrial complex, greed, ecological disasters, greed. We know that. What about your own personal life, your personal evils, being uncaring, wasting your money, hoarding your money, overwork, not paying attention to the people you love, withholding from people in need, failure to support the local church, your idols of comfort and pleasure. Again, you're complaining, you're in gratitude. The personal heart evils. Greed? Greed? Is it possible you're greedy? And the worst evil of all, verse 10, the love of money, root of all evil, it is, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the what? Faith. They've wa- that's the worst evil of all, isn't it? To wander away from the faith. Because we've set our heart on the things of earth, we've set our minds on the cultural narrative of authenticity and freedom and consumerism, and we've all seen people that we know and love wander away from the faith, haven't we? They've given up on it because they'd rather just do it the way they want to do it. What about you? Are you in the faith this morning? I hope you are. What does that mean, in the faith? It means that you have faith in Jesus. Your faith is in Christ alone. We sang the song, Christ is all. Did you sing that? Did you sing it out loud from the heart? Is that your faith, your hope, your trust? That if I lose everything, literally, if if everything sinks into the ocean and I even give up my life, I live on in Christ. Can you say that? If not, then you're not in the faith. I would implore you this morning, repent, repent from the idols of materialism, consumerism, greed, idolatry, to repent and turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus, place your trust in Christ alone for salvation and for satisfaction, because as Jesus Himself said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So let's talk about number two. Let's talk about godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's the problem. Verse five, false teachers using fake godliness to get rich. Again, we don't have that problem today, do we? (laughs) We don't have anybody hijacking the Bible or Christianity and trying to make a buck off it. Thank God. Come on now, that's all over the place, isn't it? Some of you have probably given money to some shyster on TV, prosperity preacher. Don't do it. Rather, godliness with contentment is gain. What a profound statement. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's break it down. Godliness. Godliness. Godliness was a cultural word back then. 
if you had a God and you tried to obey Him, you were godly. It would be like us saying religious today. Are you religious? Do you go to church? Do you believe in something? You're religious. Most people in America are religious. That's changing, admittedly. In Paul's day, everybody was godly because they all had a God, <laughs> right? But what Paul does is he changes the definition of the word, which is something he loves to do. So flip back a page, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Everybody flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then here it comes, great, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Amen. Paul takes the word godliness and he equates it with Jesus. Here's the mystery of godliness. Look at Jesus. He went from heaven to earth, lived, died, back up to heaven, all for us, all so that we might be like Him. Godliness is our confession of Christ. It's our Christ-likeness. And here's, so here's what Paul's saying. You can't be Christ-like without contentment. If you're taking notes, write that down. You can't be, you can't call yourself Christ-like without contentment because contentment drove everything Jesus did. So that word content, godliness with contentment is great gain. Here again, Paul is using another cultural word. It's actually a very surprising word. It's a word out of Stoicism. The Stoics taught contentment. They taught it this way. The Stoic mindset would say, in order to be content or self-controlled, self-sufficient, you have to deny all your feelings and deny your desires, and you have to just embrace reality and then, and then power through the hard things. It's basically what they said. Again, Paul will turn this definition on its head in Philippians chapter 4. Paul will say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, stoic, self-sufficient. No, keep reading, keep reading. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then, of course, here comes the classic verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The Stoic would have said, I can do all things through self-sufficiency. And Paul says, no, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a very different mindset, isn't it? We are, we are not self-sufficient. We are Christ-sufficient. 
We are not strengthened by reason over desire. We are strengthened by Christ in me. Christ in me who takes all of my desires and transforms them by His grace. Look, this kind of contentment images God Himself. In theology class, we talk about God's aseity, God's aseity. What that means is it's a fancy way of saying God doesn't need anything. God is so above all of His creation that God does not need anything He's created. Agreed? That includes you. God doesn't need you. Okay, right below God is us. Here's how we image God. When we're able to say, everything below me in creation, which is everything else, God, man, the rest of creation, everything else in creation, I don't need, this is Christian contentment, I don't need any of this, all I need is what's above me, God. I don't, I don't need, and, and you say, well, Brady, we need air, <laughs> right? Doesn't he say in this text, if you got food and you got clothes, be content, you know, ba- the basics. But look, and that's true, yeah, but listen, Christian, Christian, if your air supply got cut off, are you done? Do you cease to exist? If you have no more food or clothing and you die from starvation or cold or heat stroke, are you done? No. You're in Christ. You live forever. To die is gain. So, the Christian can be so content that they can say, I don't need anything in creation. Ultimately, I can even die and I'm okay. Can you, can you start to see how this might actually change your life? Make you content? He broke my shovel. What? 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 You're eternal, man. Right? You know what I'm saying? They got my order wrong at Chick-fil-A. Ah, you're going to heaven. Godliness with contentment is gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So, what have we gained? (laughs) If godliness is Christ, if godliness is Christ, contentment, all I need is Christ. He's above me. All I need, need is what's above me. Look, you see what he's saying? Look, this, here it is. Don't miss this. Don't, this is the paradox. This is the reversal. Here it is. If when all you need is what's above you, Christ, everything else below you, what does it become? It becomes gain. Because now you can receive it as a gift and not as something that God is obliged to give you. It's not something I deserve. It's not something I've earned. It's all, everything's just gift. So gain. Verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life. 
Christian, take hold of eternal life. Reach for what's above you. Reach for what's above. Take hold of eternal life so that everything below you is not life, it's gift. Not life, gift. Eternal life is life. Eternal zoe life. That's the word for life. It's the Greek word zoe, which means the divine life of God, the life of Christ. We have all we need in Christ. We sang it. What do, what, what do I have in Christ? Grace, help, strength, hope. That was in the song. I'll add forgiveness, love, perfection, goodness, beauty. We could probably make a list of a hundred things. Are you, let me ask the question again, are you content, are you content in Christ? Does He satisfy you? Does He strengthen you? I get it, this is a struggle. I get it, this is a struggle. It's a struggle for me. It's a struggle for all of us. But don't try to be stoic. Don't try to, don't try to suppress your feelings and desires. Let all of your desires, even your lousy ones, let even your lousy desires push you to Christ so that you can find how He actually satisfies your deepest desires. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, famous quote, right? Every man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Behind even your lousiest desires, there's a desire for something beyond you. That's why you want to control your spouse. That's why you want to have status through money, because there's something deeper that Christ alone can satisfy. Do you see it? Do you see it? Number three. Practicing contentment in Christ. As we, as we start to wrap up, let me give you five things. I'll go quick. <laughs> Don't panic. Five things that we can do to practice contentment in Christ. Are you ready? The first one, fight the good fight of faith. Verse 12, fight, <laughs> fight. It's a, it's a word, it's the word that means wrestle. This isn't a military word, this is a wrestling word. Wrestle. Wrestle for your faith. Step number one. This is step number one. This is a mindset. This is a faith mindset <clears throat> that says, like we've like we just been saying, where is my trust today? What do I trust in? Ultimately, what am I looking to? Who am I looking to? To satisfy me to save me and to satisfy me. Where is my faith? Remember, the warning was some have wandered away from the faith. You better heed that warning. Take heed lest you fall. How do you not wander from the faith? You keep wrestling with your faith, don't you? When I when I spend my money this way, what am I trusting in? Do I need 12 streaming subscriptions? Or am I starting to put my faith for comfort, my trust for satisfaction in something else? Right? 
What am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? Christian, you're in a fight. You're in a fight. Grab hold of eternal life. Listen, you're going to live forever. You're going, say, repeat after me, I am going to live forever. Okay, say, repeat that to yourself. Repeat, because look, it changes everything. Again, again, maybe, maybe your marriage isn't doing so well. But guess what? You're going to live forever in heaven. And so is she, so is he. Can you start living today like you will live in heaven? Or are you going to just keep being discontented and keep holding on to all the grudges? You know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Brady, you don't know my spouse. <laughs> You're right. Can't answer that. Number two, actively pursue Christ. Actively, per look at verse 11. Flee. But as for you, O man of God... Like he, okay, verse 10, love of money, root of evil. Solution, flee. Run away from the love of money. But listen, here's how you defeat a sin. How do you defeat the sin of greed? You can't just say, I'm going to run away from greed. You have to always run towards something else. You can't run aimlessly in the Christian life. If you run aimlessly, you'll just run in a big circle and loop right back around. Or you'll stop at other bad stations along the way. If you, if, you, if you kick out the demon and don't invite Jesus into the house, the demon goes out into the woods and gets seven more demon buddies, and they all eight of them move in. That's what Jesus taught. You can't run aimlessly. You have to flee, and you have to run towards righteousness. Verse 11, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. That's Jesus. That's the character traits of Jesus. What are you doing in your life this new year to, to put in place a habit, a discipline of pursuing Christ? Running from greed, running from consumerism, and pursuing Christ. That's my question. Number three, possess less while enjoying more. Lots of books have been written on simplicity. Simplicity. Downsizing. Getting rid of things. I'm not talking about organizing. Sometimes organizing doesn't, is, you know, you, you go to the container store and you just buy more stuff to organize your stuff, right? <laughs> not a bad thing. It's not evil. I'm just saying that's not simplicity. He says, he he's quotes Jesus when he says, if we have food and we have clothes, be content. Verse 8, right? If we have food and clothing, Jesus, that's, that's straight from Christ. The, the, birds, the birds aren't freaking out. <laughs> they collect their food every day, right? The flowers, they did, they, they're not setting up factories, they don't toil and spin. They just are there. <laughs> okay. So from that, we can start to say, maybe, maybe Christ 
wants to encourage us to live a simpler life. And this doesn't mean we can't have nice things, because in verse 17 it says, God gives us everything to enjoy, doesn't it? So let's, let, let me just start out. I'm not, I'm not trying to teach the, the philosophy of simplicity necessarily, but here's what I am trying to teach you. This is the part I think is biblical. This is what's biblical. Church, Christian, you have to stop seeing things as possessions and start seeing them as gifts. That's biblical. Your house is not your house. It's a gift. Your car is not your car. The cash, you, the money, on and on. Name a thing. Name a thing. It's not yours. It's on loan to you from the Father of lights. You have to embrace this mindset because otherwise... You're grabbing onto your stuff with tight fists. <clears throat> well, if I let my neighbor borrow my lawnmower, and this actually happened to me, <laughs> I'm not bitter. Um, <laughs> if I let my neighbor borrow my lawnmower, he might break it, never replace it, and never pay me back for it. That was my lawnmower. I got it for free from somebody else. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> if I lend so-and-so my car, and this has happened to me twice, twice, if I lend so-and-so my car, they're going to smash it up. They're going to total my car. It's mine. Oh, man, oh, man, will that destroy your soul, won't it? That kind of possessiveness will destroy your soul. It was a gift. God gave me that van. God gave me that car. Actually, another Christian gave me the one car, right? I think, I think other people gave us both those cars, now that I'm thinking about it, right? It's all, half of my life is the stuff people have given to me, and then I've given it to somebody else. Praise God. Praise God. Even the stuff we earn, give it away because we're not really earning it. It's a gift. Number four, practice gratitude. Pra I know we say this a lot, but listen, I, I struggle with this. We, we, it, turn your complaint into thanks. Turn your complaint into thanks. I can't believe how long this line is at Harris Teeter. Or, Lord, Thank you for all this stuff in this basket. <laughs> Thank you for a grocery store with almost an infinite supply of food. <laughs> Thank you for a roof over. Thank you that I didn't have to labor in a field to grow my own Pop-Tart. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Practice gratitude. Change your complaints into gratitude. And then number five, give Give, give, give it away. Give generously. Share. Verse 18, share. Tell the rich. Tell the rich. Don't be haughty. Why? Because it's a gift. It's a gift. You can't brag about gifts. Do good. 
be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. Give generously, be ready to share. So what does that mean? If you put all this together, you got two things happening. Number one, you have a plan to give. Does your family have a plan to give this year? Maybe you've never started giving yet. Maybe you don't give to the local church. Maybe you don't give to those in need. Have a plan. Talk about it. But then also be ready to give on the spot. On the spot. Both formal and formal. Why? Why? Because verse 19, this is how we take hold of life so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, the life of Christ, the life of hope, hope in eternal life, the life of faith in Christ as our greatest treasure, and the life of love where my contentment allows me to give everything away generously, sharing all that I have, doing good with all that Christ has supplied in me and for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the abundance of your love and mercy, your grace, your kindness, unpurchasable. We cannot write a check for the most important things in this world. You give them freely. And yet, God, you also, you also are the giver of the things, the stuff, the tangibles. And so, God, help us make that connection. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who has not taken hold of eternal life, maybe they say, I don't know what's going to happen to me in, in, after I die. I don't know what's going to happen in the next life. I pray today would be the day that they take hold of Jesus. Jesus, you are free of charge. All it requires is faith, trusting in you, as our Savior and our Satisfier. Fill our hearts with that even now as we sing together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.